To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Yo, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new podcast for you. So this week I have on Zach Hansen. Uh, Zach Hansen uh, worked in the tech world and has found hunting and, and trapping in the outdoor lifestyle, and um, he's written a book about it. And so uh, it's a really interesting story. Some of the, the benefits he gets from hunting, he made a move all the way across the country to live out west and just brings great perspective to the conversation and and being new and finding hunting is a unique perspective that we can all learn from and so i really enjoyed the conversation i think you guys will enjoy it too uh, so we'll get right into it i just want to thank a couple sponsors i want to thank matthews uh, Matthews has been um, putting in work for me the last handful of seasons. I absolutely love their bows and think they're absolutely top of the heap. I uh, just love their design. Uh, these bows, I set them up at the beginning of the year and they hold a tune throughout season. Like I can go shoot last year's bow, two years ago bow, and go shoot it through paper and it'll be a bullet hole. My tunes just don't move and I find that I also don't have to adjust my yardage through the season. Like I won't be two yards low or two yards high. Uh, they just stay in tune and they stand up to all the abuse that I give them. And so I uh, just love those Matthews bows and they're so forgiving, good shooting bows. I mean, the accuracy that I can shoot with them. Uh, I've been shooting uh, indoor, uh, new range in the house here. And so I've uh, been shooting Vegas targets, which is extremely difficult with a bow hunting setup at 70 pounds and small arrows. And the scores I can shoot with that thing are absolutely amazing. And, and it's all due to that bow and the forgiveness, so quiet. This new Phase 4 uh, is the quietest bow that I've ever been around, and and, and it's just a good shooter. It's um, uh, forgiving, and um, I like the the inline bridge tech, what did bridge lock technology? Uh, just puts my sight in line, and then then now they've made uh, where your stabilizers are more in line with the bow. So just some great features on it, uh, just for giving good shooting bows. So if you're in the market, make sure to go check them out. I'm a huge fan uh, of everything they do over there at Matthews. I also want to thank Sig Sauer. Uh, Sig Sauer optics have been amazing. I've been using these for the last handful of seasons too. Like I, I love their standard binoculars. Like their 15 power on a tripod are just the absolute best for picking out game. Uh, also love their 10 buys for around the chest. And then I've been using those image stabilizing binos uh, lately. So they have a, a 10 by 32, and they also have a 16 by 45. Uh, they're just um. It's, it's like glassing off a tripod, but freehanding with a pair of 16s or with a pair of 10s. I just see so many more animals with this stable image. And, and Six Hour is one of the only companies doing it, but these are amazing. Once I use these, I could never turn back. So I love the, the image stabilizing binos, best range finders in the market. Their rangefinder now has where you put your arrow speed into it, so it gets the exact cut uh, down to the exact yard, uh, shooting downhill and uphill. It's got a real powerful laser that'll shoot through grass. I get the same 
uh, ranges off light and dark targets. I'm just a huge fan of everything these guys are doing over there. Rifle scopes, spotting scopes, like they have it all. A uh, really good high-end glass for a mid-range price. These guys just do a super job and, and um, so impressed by them. So if you're in the market for some new glass, make sure to check those guys out. I want to thank the guys at Mountain Tough. Uh, they had me up to their lab yesterday and um, gave me a good hour-long workout up there. Uh, this is really benefiting my overall fitness, and so I'm uh, going to be using this app for more workouts. I want to set up my home gym in the house, uh, but they have workouts that you can do with no equipment, uh, with limited equipment, which is probably the route I'll go, or with a full gym setup. Uh, so yeah, it was amazing to work out with these guys in a team setting yesterday. Uh, and they just pushed me. It was a great workout, feel great today, and I want to do more of these Mountain Tough workouts. So check out their app. I love their mental toughness feature of it. Uh, I'm a huge fan and uh, going to continue to do these workouts along with trail running and the other things I do. Um, it's just going to help get me into peak fitness. So make sure to check it out. Uh, they're over at Mountain Tough. They have an app that you can get there uh, to use their workouts. I also want to thank Black Ovis internet retail store that has the top name brands, best gear, everything you need for your hunt, have a super knowledgeable staff. Uh, they have a, a point system where $1 equals one point. We have a promo code in there to get 10% off your first order. Just put in elevated 10 uh, and that'll save you 10% on there. And uh, thanks to those guys for their support. Um, I also want to thank Camo Fire. Camo Fire, one of the most addictive apps out there. Uh, there's just really good hunting deals that come out on top name brands. And so you can save a pile of money, get some great gear. I know my buddies use this a bunch. Uh, there's 80 new hunting deals every 24 hours. Uh, save some bucks and pick up some great quality gear. All right, over at Eastman's, we've got the Expo kickoff party this Wednesday. Everybody can attend or everybody that gets tickets for it. We're going to do a live question and answer. Uh, we'll be hanging out there, so looking forward to that. In fact, i got to get this podcast out to you guys and hit the road and get to the Expo. And, um, yeah, I'll be down there. We're, we got a booth that we're sharing with um, Cryptech and Black Rifle Coffee Company. Uh, so make sure you stop by the booth and say hi. Uh, be recording some podcasts out there and got some really good guests that I'm looking forward to. So uh, this will be a good trip. Uh, might be a little slick on the roads here until I get, um, well, I don't know. It could be slick the whole way to Salt Lake. It could take me 12 hours to get down there. Uh, I didn't buy a flight. chose to uh, drive down there. So, um now I now I have to deal with the consequences of my actions. But yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. I'll make it down there. Keep it safe and um, yeah, go have some fun. So um, yeah, come and say hi. And uh, other than that, you guys know everything we're doing over there at Eastman's. Uh, support us wherever you can. Um, we're really trying to shorten the learning curve and help out Western hunters. You know, I don't hold back any information, whether it's uh, here on the podcast, which you guys know, uh, or whether I'm writing articles. I really try to share what's helped me be consistently successful out west, and I try to break it down and give you the tips and tactics that you can apply to your own hunting. So uh, give us some support beyond the grid episodes out from last season that are really good, or uh, might be the not this not the the current past season it's the season before but i should have some ones from this past season too i have a great elk hunt uh good high country mule deer hunt so that should be fun as those start to loose as well so check us out there and um i've been talking for too long let's get into this podcast zachary hansen um yeah just a great conversation i enjoyed it i'm your host brian barney eastman's elevated here we go
Hey, Brian, how are you? Hey, I'm good. How about you, Zach? I'm doing pretty fan-freaking-tastic. I'm about to be driving 19 hours down to Arizona tomorrow to go hunt mule deer and javelina, so I'm not. I'm in a pretty good mood. <laughs> yeah, I'd say, man, going for it. That place is fun this time of year. Yeah, I've never been um, this time of year, so I'm pretty excited. Cool. Well, let's. Um, we can just do audio only. That video tends to use up a bunch of broadband. That works for me. Yeah. No, the desert this time of year is so fun. Like just the whole experience, like being in Montana, you know, it's been negative temperatures and snow and sideways and living down in that desert, um, you know, 70 degree days. I mean, it can get cool 50, 60 degrees and depends that northern half is cooler, but just not a snow covering, not a, a winter wonderland, you know, like uh, uh, feels almost like early summer hunting, you know. So, yeah, man, you'll have fun. Awesome. Yeah, I've been uh, trudging with my snowshoes, checking traps every morning, and it's like negative eight up here in central Idaho where I'm at. And yeah, it'll be nice to get a little bit of a weather break. Yeah, no doubt. Um, yeah, and those, um, what are you hunting down there? You're hunting coos deer, you said? Uh, mule deer, mule deer and javelina. Okay, cool. Yeah, the, the coos are really fun. The javelina, yeah, they're fun. They're, um, they're like meant for a bow hunter. You know, they're fairly easy to sneak up on, or at least can be. They can just be tough to find. And that desert terrain down there, it seems like, um, you know, the populations are, are, um, few and far between. You know, there's just like, their, their populations are spread out throughout the landscape, but their densities aren't real high. So they're, uh, tough to locate and it seems like they're really around water sources down there like I have good luck walking dry washes looking for tracks and then once I find where the animals are grabbing vantage points or master vantage points over those and also like um yeah like uh, uh walking around the water tanks you know to see if there's like deer moving around there but yeah I, I love um I love hunting the coos but I love hunting those desert mule deer, deer down there man they're so fun yeah, I'm pretty excited. Well, I mean, as long as I don't muff it up completely, then uh, it'll be a lot of fun. It'll be fun regardless, but. <laughs> well, <laughs> to, mu to, to muff it up is just bow hunting. That just happens. Yeah, that's true. That, <laughs> that, that is in my experience from the jump. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Uh, yeah, failure is a prerequisite in bow hunting for sure. Um, well, yeah, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, Zach, and uh, what do you think would be interesting today on the podcast? Yeah, man. Well, first off, I appreciate it. I'm a fan of your show, um, obviously. And actually, I was talking earlier today with the Mountain Tough guys, and Weston told me to tell you hello. Um, so those guys over there um, in the fitness space. But yeah, man, I mean, for me, I, I wrote a book. So that's kind of the real nexus and why I've been doing a lot of these different podcasts. But I wrote a book. It's called Turning Feral, A Modern Journey into Hunting, Trapping, and Living in the wilderness more intentionally. Um, it's done really well, surprisingly. I didn't really have many expectations for it. It was just kind of my own little memoir. But, you know, I'm an adult onset hunter, and that's really what it boils down to. I didn't get into hunting until I was in my late 20s, and it was more of the, you know, I think the more or becoming more prototypical journey into hunting, like someone getting curious about where their food comes from, you know, being influenced by some of the influencers saying, Hey, like maybe I should uh, learn to hunt my own food, got a hand me down bow and then just fumbled my way through the whole thing. But the part of the book 
is I did that when I was living in Louisiana with my ex-wife and, uh, you know, hilarity ensued and that. And then we went through an unexpected divorce, um, unexpected for me. And that was a catalytic moment. And the net of it is I picked up my bags and moved to a town of 35 people at the end of a dirt road in Idaho. You know, no central electricity, none of that. But my cabin opens up to 3,000 acres of national forest land. And then I just jumped in two feet into everything bow hunting and everything trapping. Uh, you know, elk, bear, deer, you know, the whole lot. And then trappings become a really big thing for me. A lot of water trapping, wolf trapping, the whole, whole nine. Man, good for you. Yeah, that's amazing, man. What a great story. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been good. It's been fun to get the feedback from folks who, you know, I think it resonates with, you know, I was, I'm in, by day, I'm a professional in the artificial intelligence space. So I started my career at IBM Watson uh, built ML platforms at Capital One. I work for one of the biggest video companies in the world right now. Uh, but that's interesting because I have such a weird dichotomous life, right? Like by day, I'm still doing video calls, one foot into the high tech world and everything like that. And the other foot is, you know, second I step out of my door, we don't have cell phone service, which is, you know, great. So I think it's been resonating with a lot of people, like I mentioned, who are either hunt or sustainability curious and have either never thought they could take that leap and you know part of the book is just like the real nitty gritty gory you know undertaking that people don't understand especially if you don't have a mentor you didn't grow up hunting like the you know the first time you've got a deer and the feelings the smells the you know everything else that comes along with that um so it's not so much a how-to guy but it's a little bit of just showing the real true aspects of it kind of the moral dilemmas you can find yourself in as an adult trying to get into the hunting space and you know i think it's just been it's been good my wife is tired of receiving care packages though from trappers who have been so fantastic and sending me like you know cat urine and other stuff as like thank you gifts <laughs> <laughs> you get some good smelling attractants around there huh oh yeah i mean i've got a whole pot i mean i've been doing my own beaver caster for the last few years but man i just got a uh a care package yesterday my wife brought it in like holding it away from her and it was like mink gland lure and like authentic shellfish lore so you can imagine it was a a ripe box to show up at our doorstep <laughs> yeah i don't think that'd go over too well in my household either yeah yeah but yes yeah, so, I mean, there's that and then you know being kind of in the tech and um, outdoor space and one of the reasons i'm talking with the guys over at mountain tough um, I've got a company that's launching in February. Uh, we actually have a booth down at the Western Hunt Expo in Salt Lake City. Um, and it's in the guiding space. So like when I moved to Idaho, I kind of got, I wanted to beat down the learning curve. So I ended up going on my first archery elk hunt with a guide and, you know, the experience was awesome, but there were some things that were left to, uh, desire i guess you could say when you're spending six seven grand on a hunt you know it was a situation where it was kind of late it was eight months before september i found a place that had one opening for a one-on-one -on -one archery you know horseback in situation in idaho and the guy's like yeah i can get you in you know just send me a deposit you know half the price of the hunt to a p.o box in arizona i'll see you in eight months so i thought i was getting scammed uh, but i did it anyways and you know I found out that the guy, he was great. We're friends now, but he didn't really want to talk with me or deal with all my dumb questions as a new hunter. Um, even though I felt like I 
was kind of owed it since I was investing a little bit um, to the point where when I showed up, I was hoping, you know, the eight cliff bars my wife packed me would last me in case I wasn't fed because I didn't know those things. So this company is to kind of bridge that gap. And, you know, we sell to outfitters. So we kind of take over the customer management side of the house, automate a lot of the stuff, um, all the tag management, customer management. And then we do the interaction with the hunters. Um, so we've been in building affiliate partnerships with like obviously Mountain Tough, Numa, Montana Canvas, a bunch of different companies to offer the outfitters discounts as well as the hunters who are signing up for a hunt through you know, our company's called the Outfitter Guide, our company. So those are kind of the two things that have really been on my plate that might be interesting to kind of poke on a little bit. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, yeah, I'd say we get this thing going, get chatting. Sounds like a plan, man. Okay. I'm here with Zach Hansen. Um, so Zach, uh, he has a book out, uh, Turning Feral. Um, uh, great to have you on the podcast, Zach. Appreciate it, Brian. I'm, I'm really stoked to be here. I've been doing a good number of podcasts, but I've been talking to all my friends and buddies. And when we were able to get connected, I kept telling them that I was going to be coming on. Like, oh, man, that's awesome. So the excitement is real on my end. <laughs> Well, yeah, likewise, um, uh, another fellow bow hunter. And I just really like your story. Like we got chatting before the podcast and, and your story. Uh, why don't you kind of give me a rundown uh, of the book and what it's about and your story and background and things. It's really interesting. Sure. Uh, yeah. So a little bit of an eclectic background. I am not a hunter. Uh, I grew up in South Carolina. Uh, I was always around hunting but my family wasn't hunters or weren't hunters. So it was a situation where I was always exposed, but for some reason I never had the interest or specifically the friend group to be like, Hey, come out and let's go deer hunt my, my lease or anything like that. So yeah, I went through my whole life, not hunting, um, graduated college, worked overseas, lived a bunch of places like Russia, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Vienna, Saudi Arabia, working for the government, did that for a long time. Came back stateside, ended up getting married to my now ex-wife, who was an FBI special agent, and we started moving around the country. But um, along the way, like she and I have always been athletes. I was doing ultra running. I've been doing jujitsu since I was 15. My ex-wife is a jujitsu world champ. So we were just constantly, you know, trying to hone our fitness in. And part of that is diet. So we did all the things that I now dread thinking about, like counting my macros, doing all this stuff, trying to just get an edge, um, even though I was a very mediocre athlete. And uh, part of what we came to is like, man, some of our food sources, the meat we're buying, their probiotics, all this jazz. And um, in my undergrad, I had written a dissertation on uh, you know, the politics of food. And I was like, you know what, we should uh, kind of investigate how we can get food more holistically. And that led me down the path of hunting you know, it was in my very late 20s. It was about the time, you know, Joe Rogan, John Dudley were becoming more and more popular on Instagram, which I had at the time, and it piqued my interest. So long story made short, I had a buddy, one of the guys I grew up with but never went hunting with, who was about my height, and he sent me his old Matthew single cam bow, and I ended up getting it. You know, it was probably about an inch and a half too short on the draw length, as I would later find out. Um, watched some YouTube videos, built a really rudimentary archery lane in my backyard in southern Louisiana, and just started firing arrows. And you know, part of it's in the book, but, you know, I had poor neighbors who had 
arrows in their roof. I mean, that's not stuff I like to admit, but it is in the book and it did happen. And, you know, dry fired my bow more times than I'd like to and knocked the strings off, you know, gave myself rash on my arm. But, you know, I learned the hard way in my late 20s. And you know, from there, it was just kind of a snowball effect. Yeah, that's um, it, it seems like that is the journey. It's so tough. You know, even, you know, I grew up in a hunting family, but nobody bow hunted in my family, you know, and so to gather that information, you know, is able to do it over a longer period of years and start younger. But, uh, man, the journey is the same. I mean, and it's, um, you know, you can you can definitely make some bad decisions as far as target placement and backstop and things of that nature where, you know, something bad happens or it skips off something, you know, and then and then also dry fire and like, man, it's a you know, I have also dry fired my bow and I did it on a shooting line, like learning to shoot a hinge release, you know, and uh, learning. I'm thinking so much about this hinge release and not punching myself in the face and, and learning the process of this release that. I, I think I knocked up my bow without an arrow. And so, you know, I've, I've done it too. Like, uh, uh, and I've seen guys do it. I've been shooting with guys that are doing it. You just get hyper-focused on, you know, one aspect of your shot and all of a sudden you're shooting without an arrow. Uh, so, you know, like, like that stuff happens even, you know, with mentors, it seems like our journey is, you know, this, this learning curve. It's like diving into it, you know, like you, there, there's so much to, to learn and, and, and to soak in, you know, with bow hunting and there's so many different aspects of it, you know? And so like, you, you have to ask a lot of questions like you did, like I hang out at bow shops and ask people that are better than me, but it, it is like such a process to, to be proficient, isn't it? Oh, it's, I'm still not there. And I'm sure you'd probably say the same thing. It's just this constant journey, but you know, it was that, the first step of many, right? And those first few steps often are a lot harder than when you kind of get a little bit of momentum later on. But yeah, you're right. It, it happens to everybody. But, you know, after a few years and after I was kind of full bore, part of the nexus of this book, it was I was reflecting on all of my mistakes. And I've, I swear, Brian, I've made every single one in the book and then some on all counts whether that be archery hunting or trapping. And, you know, I would talk to people or I would look at some of the social media and I would never see these things. I'm like, man, did these people not go through it? And, you know, you would occasionally hear people talk like, yeah, I made those mistakes too, but it, it never seemed to be documented anywhere. So, you know, as someone new to the sport of hunting in general, you know, I thought it would be good to kind of at least put out there in writing, you know, my experience in its rawest form, you know, and a lot of it's pretty ugly, but hopefully other people can learn a little bit from my mistakes too along the way. Yeah, absolutely. It's the only way to get better at anything is to to fail and 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 think about it and assess it, but also not dwell on it. You know, it's, Tom Brady doesn't focus on every interception that he throws. He moves on and gets to the next game. And so um, it it is a process. But yeah, that's the way it is with bow hunting. I mean, you say you failed every way. I you know, I've been doing this for 25 years. I have failed every way from Sunday. I've missed shots. I, for, you know, like every mistake you can make bow hunting, I've made it, you know, but in turn, you know, it, it hurts and cuts deep. And it's one of those things, like when we make those mistakes, uh, you know, there, we, we put so much weight in them, you know? And so, 
it, you know, it, it teaches us a pretty valuable lesson that hopefully we don't have to learn over and over again and make the same mistakes. Sometimes it does take that, but uh, it is just a learning process. And it, it's, um, you know, it, and, and like you said at, at the beginning of this, like um, uh, uh, not not proficient yet. Like I know I'm a good bow hunter, but you can always improve. And I just can't help but think, you know, the, the preparation that goes into it, the the working on your hunting and stalking skill set, working on your your shot process and shot throughout the off season, you know, and then and then shooting at animals like uh, uh, experience is the best teacher. And so uh, really, it's like spending time in the woods and making those mistakes and learning from them. Yeah, well, it's funny. And that's evidenced. And we were talking a little before the podcast, but I'm headed down to Arizona to hunt mule deer and javelina tomorrow. And what I've noticed is every hunt where I'm traveling and not just going out my back door, the amount of stuff that I bring is just continuing to increase. So like this time around, I was like, okay, I've got like three backup releases. I've got extra strings. You know, it's just kind of funny to me that amongst the years and the hard lessons, one direct byproduct of that is that I just have way more crap to carry around with me now. Yeah, well prepared, you know, and it, it's tough when you're going to a different place. You want to have everything you need there, you know, and in in every different, you know, habitat you hunt, you know, it has like a different environment, different time of year. And so, you know, you don't know what you're going to be up against down there. Like you could see snow or it could be 75, you know, so it uh, you do want to have everything you need. And especially when you're self-sufficient, too, like you're probably living out of your truck and camping and uh, so you got to have everything you need down there. You don't want to have to run to town or, or get something And man. Like, um, if you don't prepare or pack like that for those big trips, like, you know, just to forget something like gas cans. And then all of a sudden now, all you got is a full tank of gas and it takes you, you know, uh, over a quarter to get to your hunting spot and you can barely hunt and you have to go run and get gas. Like just even those little details on a hunt. Uh, uh, definitely make the difference, you know, between staying out there longer and being efficient and, and, and killing deer, not killing deer, really. Amen to that. Well, hopefully with all the crap I'm carrying, we'll, we'll eliminate <laughs> some of that stuff this next week, but I'll let you know after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's fun down there South in those Southern States, uh, you know, that muley rut just works its way down South. And so, you know, get into this January time frame. Yeah. It can be good in that New Mexico, Arizona, they have some, um, really fun hunting down there. And I just really love being in the desert. The, you know, it depends where you go. Of course they have some higher densities, but a lot of times those densities are low. So it like really forces you to be good on your glass, like to be able to look long distances. And sometimes it's even overwhelming when you get on a vantage point because you can see so many folds, so many hides, like one of the really good master vantage points to really pick it apart and then work your way through it and through it and, um, you know, rely upon the glass. Like all of a sudden uh, there'll be a deer jump out from you. And if you don't see them, it's, it's got to move, like got to travel country down there. And, um, most of the time it's not like walking country. Like you definitely walk into spots and find remote canyons and drainages and vantage points and stuff. Like I, I mostly hike to master vantage points down there, but you move a lot using your vehicle. Like you're hunting 300 square miles of desert. So, you know, you're able to be mobile and hunt a spot. And if the deer numbers aren't there, you got to keep traveling and keep looking and you may hit three, four five spots you know with not many mule deer in them but then you know all of a sudden you'll find that population sounds a little more like antelope hunting but either way i'm excited to get down there 
Yeah, yeah, good for you. Yeah, great time of the year. Um, I can't help but be a little bit jealous. Uh, gosh, I've, I've been down to the desert I, 10 or 15 years, somewhere in between there. Like, um, gosh, I like to make it an annual trip down there. Uh, so nice to get out of the cold and get down there. And uh, it's, it's good living and fun hunting, that's for sure. Yeah, I'm afraid uh, like if we were discussing about the snow in Montana and talk about it in the book, but I live in a little town in central Idaho called Atlanta, Idaho, uh, you know, a town of 35 people, 36. Now we just had our second kid uh, five months ago now. So you know, we're, we're growing the population quite quickly there, but we have, you know, feet and feet of snow. And I was talking to you about how this morning I had snowshoes on. I was out checking my, my beaver and otter traps and, you know, I'm afraid now, knowing that I'm going to get down there to the warmth, that this might actually become an annual trip for me, too, much to my wife's chagrin. <laughs> yeah, you just got to keep moving that goal line, Zach. It's just every year add another hunt and another hunt. But that's that's the thing is I go on these amazing adventures and I fall in love with them no matter where it is. And that's, you know, the, the lower 48 is definitely my favorite, but you know, fell in love with Alaska. And then I was up there multiple seasons and, um, uh, uh, traveling international like New Zealand or going to Hawaii. I've got some good buddies there. Like, uh, all these hunts that I do, uh, you know, like I, uh, you know, took up hunting black bears with a bow and arrow. And now I just love it in the springtime. It's such a great season to go chase them around. I love trying to get close to him. So it's like every one of these things that I do, I fall in love with. And it's it's supposed to be a once in a lifetime or go down there and have the experience. But then it's so much fun that I have to go back year after year. Yeah, I, I suffer the same affliction. So maybe we can get like a support group for our wives going on. <laughs> they definitely need it. Um, but yeah, that's amazing. Uh, it's such a, a, a wild journey that you took from being in tech and then, um, you know, and being active your whole life, but then making this big move and getting away from your phone and immersing yourself in the outdoors. And it is so tough without a mentor or somebody that you can talk to. Uh, it's amazing in today's day and age that, you know, you could learn things through YouTube. And, uh, you know, I also started off with a bow too long and, you know, it's like we make those mistakes, but that's um it's a really hard high bear uh a bar for entry isn't it zach it is you know and well it is and it isn't to that point so you know like i said i didn't grow up in a hunting family i, I was lucky that when i did pick up a bow um you know and went with a buddy and we ended up hunting pigs in arkansas you know we got skunked the first time we ever tried to hunt from a tree stand for pigs um, but then, you know, my ex-in-laws were hunters and it was kind of funny actually, you know, when I kind of got this idea that I wanted to be a bow hunter, you know, we went back for Christmas and my in-laws live in middle Tennessee in some of the you know, whitetail Mecca area of the Southeast. And I started spouting off. I'm sure I sounded like a douchebag talking about like the quality of meats and blah, blah, blah. And my you know, father-in-law looks at me and he's like, you know, we've got like two freezers full of deer out there. Why don't you take some home? Like you do? He's like, yeah, I, I hunt every year. I've done that since I was like six. And I was like, you know, just those things you don't realize. Like I knew they hunted, but I just never really like thought to ask, or maybe I was, my own ego was in the way and I was embarrassed, but you know, I ended up going back in the fall and uh, with him and he put me in tree stands and kind of taught me more of the science of, you know, the art of hunting and like actually looking at food plots, at least specific to whitetail. And, you know, ended up getting me on a nice buck and I harvested my first buck 
that first year that I took up bow hunting. And then from there I was hooked, but you know, it, it was, I was lucky in that regard, but that was as far as the mentorship went. It was funny because, and I talk about it in the book, that buck I shot for anybody in the Southeast, you'll, you'll relate to this, but you know, I had in my mind, I would shoot a buck, drag it out of the woods, not quartering because I had no idea how to skin or do anything for an animal, take it to a processor, you know, 30 minutes away that I'd already been you know, associated with or called ahead and everything would be gravy. Perfect. But I shot this buck early on a Sunday morning. And if you're from the Southeast, then you know, everybody's at church. And what I did not realize is the processor was closed. So what happened, drag this deer out of the woods, get it in the truck, drive the 30 minutes only to find out that, you know, the processor's closed. You could leave the deer if it were at least gutted, which I had no idea how to do. You know, by this time, rigor mortis is starting to set in. I'm calling my father-in-law. He's at church. He's like, I'll be out in like two hours because church lasts forever there. And I was like, well, shit, this meat's going to go bad if I don't do something. And it was kind of this forcing function for me to have to learn on my own. And this is where I get to the point of saying that the barrier of entry is low because eventually I got put up against the wall so hard that I had to pop out my bench made knife, pop my iPhone between the stiff legs of this deer and look up a video <laughs> and say, how do you gut a deer? And it was real trial by fire in that moment and, you know, tough learning curve. But, you know, though the barrier imagery is high for learning and getting equipment, like you said, you can learn so much from YouTube. And half of my education has been from YouTube videos. Well, yeah, in, and, um, and also, like, sometimes you just got to figure it out. You got to be forced in that situation. Like, I can remember even being with a hunting family. We were from Washington and hunted blacktails and Roosevelt's, and I remember killing an elk over there. But it, you always killed them off skitter roads, and they were fairly close. And, you know, we had a couple backpacking spots, and they knew how to quarter a deer. But, yeah, I remember killing my first elk and not really knowing, you know, how to quarter, you know, third rib or do I, I take it off with my knife and just having to figure it out, you know, and it seems like the, the more you do it, the better you get, the more comfortable you get, but it is, it is dropping your ego, especially to like take on something new or to not know how to do it. And then, um, you know, go out there and just try to figure it out, you know, but, uh, I think it's one of the beautiful things too. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you, your confidence grows. Um, but, you know, what what I learned and, you know, we talked before the show, you know, after I shot that first buck of mine, I went through an unexpected divorce and, you know, I'd been working in tech. I didn't have any kids with my ex-wife and I, I, w I had the hunting bug and I had these ideas of learning to trap. And I, I'd always been interested in mountain men as a kid. So I was stuck at this crossroads like, what can I do? I work in tech. I'm on a plane all the time. I'm in cities I hate. I was like, you know what? I'm pulling the Band-Aid fully and ended up moving out to Idaho and looking for properties for a little while before I settled on, you know, that little town we were talking about, Atlanta. And, you know, what was good is, you know, my first bits of hunting, there was so much space in between, you know, especially if I had stayed in the Southeast where it's, you know, Every November, you know, you have your whitetail season. Maybe you do some turkey hunting and, you know, if you're really into it, you know, shoot some coyotes or something. But, you know, for me, I wanted to get reps in. And what I found helped me the most was getting into trapping. And uh, 
you know, that was a, a nerve wracking experience in and of itself, but it really kind of opened my season to be year round. So, you know, I would be out there trapping foxes, badger year round, and then eventually you've got into wolf, bobcat, um, beaver, marten, otter, the whole nine. But just those, you're talking about like tearing down an animal, when you have, have to skin, you know, six beavers in one evening, you eventually get pretty f- proficient and you start to learn the muscle groups and, you know, glands and everything else. So if I did have a piece of advice for folks who are getting into it, maybe hunt curious as adults, you know, if you want to really beat down the learning curve of big game hunting, I truly believe actually getting into trapping can really help, help you there or did it for me at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's so many, um, correlations you know between uh uh different things that we do and definitely trapping it's like gets you out in nature and immerse yourself in nature and um you know and you're trying to to figure out animals and um so i can definitely see how you know that knowledge helps transfer especially like just the experience like you say is skinning so many animals the more times you do it the more times you learn so yeah definitely uh would make you better like at 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 hunting as well so yeah, it's like um, it's such a a fun journey, uh, and it's like whatever we can do to be this uh year round to absorb information and to improve our skill set to be better at you know whatever our overall goal is, whether it's trapping or or hunting. And I know that you know like hunting hunting sheds back in the day just taught me so much like about the bulls and their behavior and bedding and and feeding and. Uh, on trails and just being out with them, you know, and spending the days and the time like I would learn and then, you know, finding out like we we're like I had mentioned earlier, like a spring bear season where you could be out spring. And so I, I just, you know, I did the same thing as I just immersed myself in the outdoors as something I could do, you know, year round, be out there and be learning. And and then I started to hone it in to, you know, what I really want to do is, is bow hunt these animals. And, you know, and so, and then it was about committing all my effort to that, to to bow hunting and bow hunting seasons and, and, uh, saving all my vacation time for bow hunting. You know, it seemed like it, it won out over a lot of the hobbies for sure. Uh, does trapping and, um, uh, hunting, do they fall in different seasons for you where you're trapping in the winter time and then hunting in the fall? Well, the answer is yes. There are some that conflict, right. And, you know, this is where I struggle some, right. For instance, like I've been full born to bow hunting. Like I haven't actually harvested an animal with a rifle yet. I ended up getting a, you know, from a friend, a really nice 300 PRC rifle, but it sat in my closet for two years because I just never felt comfortable taking it to go hunt because I hadn't really been taught. But recently I did like an extra long range course, but you know, I haven't shot it since then. I still wouldn't feel comfortable. And to your point, like bow hunting is kind of all consuming, especially when you do it, but you know, trapping, the good thing about it is, you know, you're not really, I can still do it during seasons. It's a lot longer days um, because, you know, you're not really controlled by hunting light, right? So, and archery hunting is first light, last light. And where I live, I can really hunt everything. We have, you know, tons of black bear out my back door. I actually shot my first archery black bear in my underwear off my back porch of just completely. It's in the book, but 
you know, it was kind of happenstance and got real lucky after doing a lot of spot and stalking and failing. But, you know, we have all these animals here. So it gives me this opportunity to, you know, set traps super early uh, before first hunting light, come back. I can get my bow, do everything that I want to do from a hunting perspective, and then either go check traps that night or the following morning again before. So, you know, I'm starting to learn how to skirt it a little bit. So it's not as conflicting, but there definitely have been times, especially um, as I really started to pick up wolf hunting, because that conflicts a lot with, you know, elk. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you like chasing those wolves around, huh? Yeah, it is, man, smartest animal. Like either I am the dumbest human, which is a very real possibility, but those animals are so smart. Like the amount of times and, you know, dedication that goes into to hunt these wolves. And we have about five packs that run around us, but, you know, they're so smart. But it's also so crazy to see the true damage they can do out there to the deer and elk, especially as we get in kind of the late winter when, you know, they can run them through some deep snow, but you know, it, it's a lot of fun to chase them. Um, I haven't been too successful in this endeavor. I'm still trying and getting a lot of mentorship from, you know, some, the Montana trapping associations, president, Chris Morgan, Idaho trapper association, president, Rusty Kramer. They've been really good and great mentors, but yeah, it's a, it's a tough one, but it's also a lot of fun. Yeah. I've heard they're really challenging for, for trapping and then also hunting. Um, his packs get pretty smart. So yeah, I know the I know there's some guys around here that go pretty hard at. It. There's some guys that hunt those things pretty hard and um uh say it's a true challenge. Oh yeah. I mean, it, see we see them, we hear them, but to get on them is a different game for sure. Hmm. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, we we have some packs around here. Yeah, they it seems like they adapt pretty quick. Um, you know, and it seems like they're always on the move. Uh, you know, uh, moving country and, and their home range seems so big as well, you know, that they can cover a, you know, hundred square mile home range. And so it seems like they move quite a bit. And, um, I know I spend a lot of time in the woods and I don't see a lot of wolves year to year. You know, I have seen a bunch in the past, but yeah, they absolutely decimate populations. I mean, to be here for the the introduction of wolves in the in the park and then to watch them, you know, move through and then get to uh, our public lands and just decimate elk herds. I mean, they took the Elk City elk herd from um, 20,000 down to maybe 1,500 animals. And there's places that were definitely hit harder than we were hit, uh, like in southwest Montana, our valley we have a lot of cattle ranches and so the wolves would get down in these cattle ranches when they would calve and then you know it couldn't help they couldn't help themselves get into these calves and then because of that even though they were protected uh the the cattle ranch could call in the government chap uh the government trapper and he would come in in a chopper and then shoot the wolves so we were our valley fared better than most because we were able to control their populations even as they were protected but there's some places i mean they don't even have a late season gardener hunt anymore it used to be the best tag in montana and i had put in for it for a bunch of years and never drawn it 
hunted it with a buddy, but every year they less they let you hunt late season bulls like on the the winter range coming out of the park around Gardner and in those places and just be some giant bulls that came out. But those wolves just absolutely decimated that elk herd. Same thing took that thing down from twenty thousand to uh, a little over two thousand. You know, it's just a different herd over there. So they can definitely decimate populations, moose populations, and I think our animals are just finally figuring out how to live with them. Really, I think we're uh, and because we can hunt them and trap them, you know, we can control their populations a little bit better. But, yeah, that's great you do that. It's like doing your part as well. And, uh, yeah, I need to do more of that. I always say I'm going to wolf hunt, and then I, I burn all my time during bow hunting season and hunting late rutting muleys, and then, you know, I've got to be back to work and uh, back on the grind. But um, one of these years I definitely have to take it on. Yeah, I'll, I'll hook you up with uh, the Montana Trapper Association president. He'll, he'll take you out at some point. He's a great guy, Chris Morgan. But, uh, yeah, it, it's one of those things. It's You said that long, long ranges, and, you know, I've heard this. I don't know if this is actually scientifically accurate, but they're on about a you know, 30, 31-day uh, circle of mm. that range. So oh, that's you, wild. It's a lot of dedication to put steel on the ground because, you know, you might put steel on the ground you know, where you found a recent kill, something like that. But then it might be 30, 31 days before they kind of come back that way. But it's pretty certain they will. But like for where we're at, it's crazy because there's not a lot of trappers out there. I mean, we have a pretty healthy number in Idaho, but, you know, in these central Boise mountains, it's not not a lot. And, you know, the hunters, everybody pretty much has a wolf tag in their pocket, but it's all opportunistic. There's very few, like you said, who are out there hitting it hard specifically for wolf. Um, so I'd love to see that, that bolster and help grow that because it is crazy. Cause we just have moose kind of finding their way back into our area. We saw bull moose the other day coming out and, you know, I'd hate to see those, those numbers dwindle when they're already so low where we're at. Yeah. Uh, they're just susceptible. You know, they sink down in that snow where those dogs can run on top. And, um, yeah, they can just decimate them. And those, those wolves, you know, I saw when they started finding those elk herds, like I, I came across some scenes that were just wild. Like I came across one scene where, uh, the, the wolves had killed 10 or 12 cows and, and hadn't eaten on any of them. Like had just, uh, like got into a pack of them in the deep snow and they were laying dead all over around there. So, uh, yeah, they can definitely be tough on populations. It's, it's just good that we can, uh, control them a bit for sure. Yeah, in the book, I have a chapter on wolf and some of my pursuits, but there's pictures in there. And you know, we have an 80-mile dirt road in and out of our town. It's the only way in, only way out during the winter. All dirt, you know, avalanches in, rock slides in quite often. But, you know, one year, I was driving up, came across four different wolf kills. Just cow elk, cow elk, bull elk, cow elk, just completely like you said, like almost toyed with, like some were eaten pretty well. The others just kind of looked like they were just sport killed. And, you know, it was just a pretty consistent pattern in one day, just four elk along a little stretch of road. Yeah. Those things, um, they're efficient predators. That's for sure. That pack hunting, you know, it's, um, pretty wild and, and it's wild to be around them. I know, um, like being around them in Montana and in, and also Alaska, like hearing them howl or having a pack, around you in the fog and and um seeing them kind of dart through the fog like uh they're an eerie predator you wouldn't want them after you that's for sure i tell you what though and speaking of archery hunting when it comes to wolf, wolf too um you know i was hunting archery elk last 
two years ago in the White Cloud Wilderness in Idaho, kind of up in the Salmon Chalice National Forest area. Um, and it was crazy. We were had so many bugling elk. We were talking to so many elk. Um, didn't get on an elk this one specific day. We went back to camp. We were sitting at camp and kind of up on a ridge line above us, we heard a wolf howl. You know, not, not crazy. It was really cool. But then I swear the next two days, Brian, not a single bull would bugle. And, mm. you know, it's also interesting. And again, this might not have scientific grounding, so don't take my word for it. But, you know, you hear about this and I saw it with my eyes, like where these introduction of wolves are also kind of causing a little bit of vocal changes in elk and how willing they are even in the rut to kind of talk to each other. And that makes it hard for us archery hunters for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've definitely heard of that. And it's wild to see it with your own two eyes. It seems like it almost like a, you almost have to see it and experience it. Some of these theories on these animals before I buy into it, you know, it's, um, but yeah, that seems to be one that I hear repeated a bunch that, uh, once the dogs move in and start hunting them, that those elk really shut up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't a fun day after that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and elk hunting is just such timing too. And that, that, you know, who knows if it uh, if it was the dogs that got in there and really hunted them and pushed them out of there, or if the dogs got in there and made the bulls go silent, or, you know, that rut just ebbs and flows, too, where it peaks and valleys even in the middle of September, you know, and it is such timing. It can be magic where you hear 300, three, 400 bugles a night where it just goes crazy, and then the next night it can go silent, or you see a bull off feeding by himself, you know, the cows go out of estrus, or... Uh, weather patterns are wild too where i've had rain and snowstorms that come in and just turn on those those bulls and they rut like crazy and all of a sudden i'm in the biggest rut fest ever and i've also had storms come in the same conditions same weather patterns and just totally stop the rut like i have a hard time putting my thumb on it a lot of times yeah well i have a hard time putting my thumb on anything uh being as new as i am relatively speaking but you know to that end though as I've been a guy in tech and you know, I think I'm like most people who get into elk hunting, like you choose kind of arbitrarily maybe earlier in the year, like, okay, you know, I'm going to look at the moon phases. I'm going to do this, that, and the other, and I'm going to pick a week in September to go ahead and put in to work to take off. Right. So it might be the second week. It might be the first week or the third or fourth week, whatever the case may be. And, you know, it, it seems to me every time I've done that, you know, either the week before or the week after seems to be when it's going off. And that might just be my own you know, perspective on the ground there. But point being is I have to find a way. And this is what I want to do is to open a company within the outdoor space so I can open myself up to hunting all of September. You know, I think that's the ultimate goal, especially for archery elk hunting. If you really want to see success, it's like you need the full month. Like this past year, I was up hunting in West Yellowstone. And, you know, the time I had taken off, it was a full moon. It was still hot. The elk were talking, but they were bugling all night with that full moon. And then we'd have like an hour or two early in the morning where they'd want to play a little bit and then they'd want to go bed down. Uh, so, yeah, I think my goal is to just get out of tech fully and somehow find a way to make a living in the outdoor space so I can fully dedicate myself. Because it seems like that's what it takes if you really want to have consistent success. Yeah, that's it. It's um, 
it's time, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, it can be done as a weekend warrior and you just be smart and strategic. And, and we do have like Montana has a five week, six week bow season. So, you know, you get quite a few days and if you add a Friday or a Monday, you get quite a bit of hunting in, uh, but that is the answer. You're spot on Zach. Uh, it is to take off the whole month of September. There's nothing more enjoyable to hunt the rut, uh, in its entirety from the start to finish. And there's opportunities all the way throughout, uh, that early rut where they first kick off. I mean, some of the best hunting is that time of year and the, the elk are in susceptible spots and bulls can be called in because they're looking for their cows. And, um, man, that early pre rut stuff. I, I love that time of year. Like I start get go getting going, you know, usually seventh, eighth, maybe the tenth, and it's good hunting, good opportunities there, all the way into the peak rut. And then, you know, I have great hunting. I've killed a bunch of bulls in October, uh, the post rut where they uh, move down and they get in uh, uh, bigger groups of elk and they uh, are looking for a second cycle estrus cow. And so there's a lot of bulls that are contending to breed those cows. And so that can be insane hunting in October. And it it does. The rut just ebbs and flows. And just like you said, the conditions, like who knows, to plan a, a week in advance and just think you're going to hit the, the best rut or the best hunting, you know, it, that's a, a, a tough to do. Although, you know, it's like you have those weeks, you know, elk hunting is timing. So if you find spots where elk hunting's really good a certain time of year, the next year, it seems to come around uh, at the same time, give or take a couple days, you know. And so, you know, I will use that as a tactic. It's like, okay, uh, you know, this place hunts good first week of set. This place hunts good second week of September. And then you kind of have your spots and then you can go hit them, you know, and, and uh, know that you're going to get into elk. Or at least, uh, I guess you never know you're going to get into elk, but at least expect to. And the, the key to killing elk is just being into elk, you know, so uh, it's a huge part of it. Yep. Well, like I said, I either have a few options, which is, you know, rob a bank, uh, <laughs> lottery, or start a company in the outdoor space. Mm -hmm. so that last one's kind of where I'm starting to, to focus my efforts in an attempt to be able to get all of September off and October off in the future. Yeah, well, that's it. Um, so fun to have something that we're so passionate about, something that you love with every fiber of your being, you know? And so you do, like you find something you love and then it drives you to uh, uh, build your life around that, to structure your life so you get that time to go chase you know, critters. And, you know, I've got a real problem, Zach, because I, I love hunting all the way from about August to January. So mine isn't even a month. I love hunting mule deer early. I love hunting uh, uh, elk during the rut and then mule deer pre-rut, uh, uh, during the rut, and then south like you're going. Like, it seems like there's always something to go hunt. So, yeah, it is about structuring our lives to, to be able to get as much time to go do what we love to do as we as we possibly can. Yeah, and it's amazing to think back. And again, part of what the book's about is like, I made that full 180, right? And, and if I looked at myself, 15-year-old Zach, even being in the, uh, you know, sorry, my dogs are barking outside. That's always exciting. Oh, no worries. Uh, got a visitor maybe, huh? Yeah, I guess so. We got a big Kane Corso and a Shih Tzu, and I would trust a Shih Tzu uh, over the Kane Corso any day of the week, taking uh, <laughs> out a mountain or a bear. Gotcha. But, um, for me, it's, it was such a change, right? I was keeping up with the Joneses, white picket fence life, didn't give hunting a second thought. Like to be able to picture myself where I'm at now, just full bore trapping hunting, it's, I feel very fortunate. 
And, you know, it's funny where life will take you. Uh, you never know. So for people listening, if you're into hunting or thinking about it, don't be afraid to take a step because it's a, uh, it's very rewarding. It's very challenging. It's very hard. There's no ever learning everything, but it's a blast. And I've learned so much about myself in the process too, you know, tamping down my ego, you know, learning about what it takes to be really disciplined, what real consequences are when you're doing some real backcountry hunting, uh, you know, with life flight flights out, you know, it's a, it's a crazy life to live, but it's one that's so rewarding. So I hope people listening that are interested or already in it and have friends that might be interested to kind of tug on them a little bit and pull them along for the journey. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a wild world. You know, it's like, um, to go immerse yourself in nature, like your decisions have real consequences and, you know, life is so nerfed or it's so, comfortable you know we have our houses and we have our tap water and we drive our rigs to our to our work and you know it's just um uh makes life fairly easy so it's it's um it does it 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 affects us in a certain way when we get to go out and go have an adventure and uh you know our decisions have real consequences and to be able to to think through situations to be able to improve the way you 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 think or your wood sense and then to be able to feel comfortable really pushing your limits and going to these extreme places to to go hunt and knowing that you're going to be safe and going to be okay and knowing you have a plan you know just like the the trip you're planning to go on you know preparing for that so it 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 is it's um it's wild and it 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 um it's something that we fall in love with like it's something you know for me you know, uh, uh, definitely you have to have money to pay bills and to support the family, but chasing zeros isn't what I love. Chasing money or more work or being busier isn't what I love. Like what I strive for in life is to have more time to do the thing that I love to do. And that's, you know, to be in the mountains bow hunting or, you know, on the, on the rivers fly fishing pretty much. I mean, those couple things along with trail running and, uh, uh, spending time with my family, you know, there's a bunch of things that I enjoy to do, but that's, what's really important to me. And when you get a driving force like that, Man, you can make some uh, real big decisions in your life to to be able to get that time and to be able to go uh, to these different places and experience it for sure. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, those prioritization calls, they become a little bit more crisp when you have a very clear focus on what you want to do. And like you said, it's not about chasing zeros, but it's definitely a means to an end. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's the ultimate catch 22 and something I still wrestle with every day, which is, you know, okay. How can I not do my day job and get more into hunting? But you have to do it in a lot of businesses. Nobody can really just stop and drop what they're doing unless you have a, a trust fund, which I certainly do not. And you know, it, it's it's a d- dual-edged sword for sure, but it's one I'm still trying to sort out in my own brain. Yeah, well, and it's, um, you know, it's uh, how you do one thing is how you do everything. So you like talk about those lessons that you've learned in bow hunting and how much you love it. And then you're, you're, you're able to use those lessons and, and, and transpose those skills that you, that you've built in other facets of life. And so like, I think it's just trying to find balance. Like I enjoy working. I enjoy, 
a, a bunch of different things, but it's finding balance in my life where I'm not working all the time to the detriment of my hunting time. And, and the, and the same thing, you know, I do like to hunt and go on a bunch of good adventures, but you know, there is an off season too, and there is home in between and there are days off and boy, I like to keep busy. And so, you know, therefore it's like getting some work done as well. Um, but I know it is, um, it is a double-edged sword for sure. Uh, cause it is, uh, so enjoyable and fun to do, but, um, uh, tough to figure out to be the only thing I do. That's, that's for sure. Birds of a feather, man. I'm, I'm with you. So when you figure it out, you let me know. And if I do, I'll let you know. Yeah. Keep working towards it. Right. It like keeps getting better. Uh, year in, year out. Like I'm just getting done with, um, uh, a personal house and, you know, almost being out of balance, which too much work this hunting season. I had a bunch of good adventures and got a bunch of days out, but they were also pretty stress filled where I was like always thinking about something else or like I did a good job of unplugging and enjoying my time out. But there, there was periods of time where I was on a hunt thinking about something that I had to get done on a construction site, you know, and I, I don't like to have, uh, uh, this this busy mind like I like to unplug and be in the present moment but I had to work pretty hard at it this year with so much going on so um yeah it's almost like I need to be too busy to realize that gosh I took too much like I need to scale it back a bit so uh we get in this house in like the next few days and um man it's just been uh it's been like 100 hour weeks for the last I don't know six eight weeks or something trying to finish up so it'd be so good to get a break yeah, well, well, congratulations on the new house, A. Uh, B, similarly, this year, you know, I don't really do New Year's resolutions because we're a pretty disciplined family, so we just kind of go, you know, our goals are kind of always there, and we're always kind of pushing towards them, but one of my things was to simplify because I felt the same thing this past hunting season with the release of this book. We had our second child. Um, you know, there was just a lot going on as well, and it you know, I was still able, similar to you, to get out quite a bit. I have a very supportive wife. You know, she got me out, made sure I was out archery elk hunting as much as I could, um, and then trapping as well. And, you know, you're right. It's hard to tamp down that monkey mind. And I think that's one of the great things about hunting, especially archery hunting or something where you're out spending a lot of time on your feet. You can kind of get in that meditative state pretty quickly. But man, when you have a lot going on, it's really hard to de to detach and get to where you want to be. And to that end, like for me, I have to simplify this year. You know, I'm going to be not taking on and stretching myself as thin as I did in 2022, or at least that's my goal. And, you know, hopefully by the time fall rolls around, have a little bit less on my mind to really spend some, some quality time out there where I can really focus on, on me and animals. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's um so beautiful when you're there and in the present moment and it does force you to be in the present moment when you're hunting elk or when you're into them, you're not thinking about anything else. That's kind of like part of the release or part of the reason why, you know, I love it. And I'm, I'm sure you and other guys do too. It's, is um, it does force you to be at that moment. And the only thing you're thinking about is hunting that bull and making the moves of how I'm going to get in front of him or how I'm going to get around him and what he's doing. And there is no phone, there is no work. There is, you know, it's like, uh, just hyper-focused on this, uh, this wild interaction with, uh, uh, you know, these, these animals that I've grown to love, whether it's a big bull elk or a, a mule deer, but boy, being, a uh, immersed in a stock or being in that present moment, that is the fun stuff. I mean, that's what you go for. And there's so much, 
you know, like Western hunting, there's so much effort that goes in and there's so much not seeing too. It's, you know, it's not mm-hmm. like I'm always into 300 bugles a night. It's, uh, you know, a lot of times I strike out and elk are nomadic. And so I have to be nomadic as well. But sometimes I hike way back in some deep, dark canyon that should be full of elk that three years ago I found them in and I get back in there and it it's crickets, you know, and it's like, okay, well, what's the next move? You know, where's the next place I have to go? And it, it does seem like that that theorizing and that creative thinking and that uh uh you know pair that with the the physical nature of the mountains and it's um you know like like being in the mountains for a ten day hunt is uh, more grueling than a than an ultra marathon race to me it's just day after day of constant effort but gosh we're like meant for it like I love that the the physical nature of western hunting like i love challenging my body and challenging my mind and then trying to theorize and figuring out these animals and it's such like that's what's hooked me about it you know and so uh i do love that it makes me be in the present moment and i'm sure that's what made you move halfway across the country and be trapping and hunting is it just forces you to be present and out there in nature and then it's it's challenging and you never stop learning you never stop improving if that's the way you choose to do it it's just like um a student of the game always absorbing information always getting better and uh i think that's what i like as well couldn't have said it better myself brian yeah it's um it's fun and it's it's pretty cool that you were able to move out west and um immerse yourself in that that lifestyle uh it is so nice we have to really work and make sure you know the phones are so convenient and nowadays you can handle a lot of business from a phone and you can check in and for for those reasons it's convenient but gosh we have to turn those things off even in the the mountains hunting like it'll just snap you out of that present moment or snap you back in and and we do have to have correspondence with our our family our wives and check in but boy it is nice to turn my phone off for a handful of days or to know i'm not going to have service that's almost part of the experience for me yeah and that's exactly why i moved to where we moved to it's uh I came from that high tech space, you know, I was working in artificial intelligence, helping build out things like the infinite scrolling and all these other horrible, you know, addictive things, ad monetization, uh, algorithms, uh, you know, making sure we're targeting the right people with the right product, the right time, um, all that stuff. And for me, I, I think that weighed on me a little bit too, in my decision, but, you know, staying in that realm, you know, I, I have to disconnect, you know, when I'm done working, I'm done working. And like you said, when you can get out of cell phone range, that's great. And for me, like my wife and I, we love it because we only have Wi-Fi. We don't have cell phone service. So if we step out of our door and get within a hundred yards of our little cabin uh, and out of range of Elon Musk's Starlink, you know, we are off. And that is fantastic because we can suit up as a family around three o'clock go take a nice long walk in the woods. And, you know, we are disconnected. We're only with us, you know, save for a garment or whatever else we have with us. And man, that is, that's valuable, especially if you can start to tap into that on a near daily basis. Oh, it's so valuable. Yeah. It just, um, 
you know, stress and, and, you know, there's a reason why we had like so many problems in the nation, you know, with, uh, depression and, and stress and anxiety and all these different disorders where the, the, the mind isn't happy. Like it's missing something, you know, our, our primitive brain needs that. It's like nature is good for us. Getting away from that phone and that constant chatter is, is good for us. You know, it, it's one of the things I, you know, I love trail running. It's like, uh, I love the physical nature, but I love the, the mental meditation of it. And I love, like I'm in the mountains. I feel like uh, running every day on trails up and down elevation just prepares me the best for the, the mountains. And it, feels a bit of like paying my dues towards season as well but it is immersing myself in nature for an hour hour and a half where there is no noise i am away from my phone and i just always come back better in fact like you know if i'm if i'm short tempters you know like i'll i'll hear a common uh question from my wife it's like hey have you ran today you know and that's kind of her cue that uh you know i'm being a jerk or that i need to get out and run or that you know i'm being short temper whatever the case is but um uh yeah it is um really good for the soul and really good for the mind and we have to be disciplined and get away from those phones get away from them in the evening and it's it's like um you know, I also want to be good at business and have good correspondence with my clients and make sure I'm corresponding back and forth. But you're given some grace, you know, you're given, you know, whether it's a half a day or a day on a text and a, definitely a day on an email that, you know, I don't have to worry about responding right back to everybody. Like I'll see it in a few hours when I look at her, I'll see it tomorrow morning and then I'll type out my emails and type out my text. Like, uh, we, you know, it's the same thing as bow hunting. Like the longer we go in in life, hopefully the better we're getting at it. But we figure out kind of how to handle some of this stuff. And just like you said, when you're away from work, you're gone from work. Like that's taken effort to be able to do that. I bet, especially with such important positions. Like you have so much stress on your shoulders, you have to get so much done. Uh, that that even you stop and you go out and you're thinking about those things. And so it takes real work to be off work and and that's yeah. for us too like i i know just not bringing it home with me is so important for me and my family as well yeah it, it was what was interesting and I, I write about it in the book a little bit it's ironically when i moved out to where i moved out like aside from not having cell phones connection when we left the house like we have frequent power outages we run our own power um so when the power goes out the wi-fi goes out and you're completely off so when I first moved out there, I, I had literal stomach aches at the thought of, you know, our power going out in the middle of a, you know, quote unquote, important meeting. And it would happen. And what happened over time, though, is eventually I kind of got numb to it and I didn't lose my job. You know, those meetings weren't that important. So it actually kind of taught me that you know, a little bit better calendar control. Like now I do not put on superfluous meetings on my calendar. Like I used to measure my own success by how many meetings or emails I was pushing out in a day. And I realized like half of that was just bloat in my own ego talking. And, you know, it, it's ironic that it took going out there, not having reliable power, you know, only having internet you know, really made me a better worker because all of a sudden I was becoming more succinct. You know, I was focusing on my asynchronous communication. Like if I'm going to send an email, it's going to be a good email. It's going to cover everything. If I'm going to get a phone call or have a meeting, it's going to be for a reason. And I'm going to let people know it might drop at any minute. And, you know, there's going to be action items and agendas and whatever. So ironically, it made me a better worker, too, and gave me a lot more freedom and made me happier. Though that's not what 
is coached in kind of the corporate world. Yeah, that's uh, uh, I really like that. It sometimes it is just um, perspective or realizing it, you know, and then uh, making the adjustment. So you said uh, uh, you realize that once you move to where the power could go out and this could happen or you could be out of reception and same thing. And just in life, it's like all the problems that I faced, I've got through all of them, like every one in my entire life. And I'll figure out the next one. You know, it's almost like a, a, a lot of these things or these adjustments that we make in their in our life. Like it's just gaining perspective over it and going, hey, I. I don't like the way I'm really handling this, like bringing work home every night from five to seven and how I'm short with my family and not really enjoying my time. I think I'm going to make an adjustment there. You know, I think I'm going to leave work there and and be present with my family when I come home, whatever the case is, you know. But, yeah, it's just wild how a perspective can kind of change the way we operate and then in turn change our lives. Yep. I agree with that, and it was eye-opening for me and has made me happier and a better worker, hopefully a better husband, because my wife does the same thing, asking if I've worked out when I'm a little crabby. So it's just this accumulation of everything underpinned by discipline and you know doing the things it takes to get out and do the things you want to do. And for us, it's bow hunting, and I'm going to be happier with it. Yeah, good for you. Well, yeah, congratulations on the book. Yeah, I can't wait to check it out. Yeah, it sounds like a good read. And, um, yeah, what a wild story you have. And um, it's just uh, uh, fun to talk over your journey and then fun to talk over your love of bow hunting. Yeah, well, I appreciate you having me on, Brian. And, you know, if anybody's going to be in Salt Lake City for the Western Hunt Expo, I'll be there with uh, my new company, theoutfitter.guide. We're booth 2225. We'll be with the Mountain Tough guys out there. Um Anybody wants to stop by, I'll probably have books on hand if you want one. Um, but yeah, I look forward to meeting a lot of people and continuing to meet more people in the industry and other people who share the same interests that we do, Brian. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that that new company, uh, what do you guys specialize in? Uh, so pretty much customer management for the outfitter space. You know, I beat down the learning curve my first few years of archery elk hunting by going with an outfitter. Um, Fantastic experience, learned so much so quickly, but for the amount of money that I was investing, you know, the customer management side from the time that I booked the hunt, you know, was about eight months till we were out in the woods. You know, I had questions because I was new. You know, I wanted to know, like, where are we camping? Are we going to have food? Like, you know, do I need to bring anything? Do I need to learn how to bugle before I get there? Are you going to be bugling? Like, what happens when we get an animal? You know, and outfitters vary in their preparation of their hunters, but Ultimately, I'm bridging the gap between, you know, my tech background and my love for hunting now. And we're building out a platform for outfitters uh, where we pretty much take over the whole customer management side of the house. So think, you know, all of the contracts, the the payments, um, onboarding hunters, and more specifically, and where we kind of think we have some special sauce is, you know, that in between. Uh, by the time someone hunts or books a hunt and the time they're out in the field, we're going to prepare them. You're going to get emails from us with, you know, what your campsite might look like. You know, if you haven't been on a horse in forever, we're going to kind of show you a video on left, right, center, how to make it stay on the trail and do what you want it to do. Uh, things like taxidermy, tipping, fitness, everything that goes up to make you as successful as you can be in an expensive investment is what we specialize in. And we're, like I said, launching in February at the Western Hunt Expo. Um, so anybody who wants to learn a little bit more, stop by there or Go check out our website. Yeah, really cool. Uh, what a what a great uh, niche! Like uh, just filling 
those gaps in between the hunter and the outfitter. Yeah, it's a great idea, Zach. So, yeah, no, I'm sure you'll do well with it. I'll uh, try to catch up with you down there at the expo. Let's introduce ourselves down there. Really nice to meet you. And, um, man, good hunting down there in AZ. Go have some fun. Will do. Appreciate it, Brian. Okay. All right. Thanks. All right, guys. Yeah. Um, thanks again for listening in. Thanks again for Zach Hansen taking the time. Uh, check out his book and everything he's been working on. Uh, just a real intelligent guy, and so uh, it's a fun back and forth with him. Uh, heading down to the expo. Again, we're doing the expo kickoff party Wednesday night. Uh, it's with the Mule Deer Foundation. It's with Black Rifle Coffee Company. It's with uh, Fieldcraft Survival. Uh, so yeah, it should be fun. Um, stop by and say hi at the booth. And um, yeah, what was I? Gosh, I had something I wanted to to mention. Um, oh, the uh, yeah, we did the uh, Mountain Tough workout yesterday. Uh, they have a podcast that I did with them after the workout. Just this great conversation. I really enjoyed it. So that'll be releasing next week. Go check that out. And uh, thanks to all of our sponsors, uh, sponsors for this show. Uh, we had Mountain Tough. Uh, we've got Matthews, which I just absolutely love their bows. Um, man, I'm so psyched to get this uh, Phase 4 uh, all set up and ripping, and I'm so close to having my garage set up. Uh, I really am feeling better and back to myself. Man, that was a big push on the end of that house. That um, I didn't break my brain, but, uh, man, it came close when I start working that many hours and things. So, yeah, it feels nice to get back to my normal self. Uh, but yeah, thanks to Matthews, thanks to Sig Sauer, thanks to Black Ovis. Uh, also want to thank Camo Fire and thanks to Eastman's for all their support. So um, yeah, just getting back to normal life, been getting my workouts, been eating right, shooting my bow, um, you know, back to work for Barney Construction. You know, it's like I, I never really quit, but it's definitely when I was working that many hours on my house, I was neglecting things that I had to get done. So yeah, just back to it, just trying to handle business and um uh, spending time with my family, actually get to have dinners again at night together. So, um, yeah, it's all good on my side, man. Feeling great. Um, feeling like myself again. So, um, yeah, I'm really enjoying this house, man. It's, um, super nice and, and, um, yeah, it's nice to have my own space and, uh, be nice when I get this garage all set up. I'm in the process now. And so, uh, you know, just going to have to work away at it and, um, get it the way I want it. But yeah, super excited. It's, uh, it's a really nice place, so um, yeah, time to focus on this hunting season and drawing some tags and lining some adventures up. So um, yeah, that's a wrap on the podcast. I better get this out, get on the road, uh, make sure to come say hi at the expo down there, and um, thank you guys for all your support. I sure appreciate you.